Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. everyone, I'm Monty Jude with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and welcome to our teaching on the book of Revelation. We're revealing the book of Revelation for you, and we are in this program, we're at chapter 6, chapter 6 beginning at verse 1. Now before I go any further in it, let me just do a very, very quick review. In the first five chapters, what we have heard is the introduction to the book. I want to reinforce this again, uh, that there's a particular angel that has shown John these things, and it's not the Messiah. Now, he's introduced the Messiah, and the Messiah does give seven messages, seven letters to seven churches. A lot of people um, like to use the what I call the telescopic method and say these are churches over the ages, over so many years. That is absolutely not correct. Uh, and the reason why it can be dismissed so quickly is because Yeshua alludes to and threatens to come quickly to them if they don't get certain things corrected. I don't believe that he makes idle threats. I think those are very serious warnings. And that is what would connect all of the messages into one comprehensive message. It just has seven parts. Well, welcome to the book of Revelation. We have 57 different sets of sevens uh, in this book, and it's part of the presentation uh, for it. So the Messiah has warned uh, the end-time believers, the last generation believers, certain things that must get corrected in their assemblies to get them ready for what is getting ready to come. Namely, the great tribulation is getting ready to come. And God's final judgments will be upon the world. and But God's people are going to be preserved out of it. At least some are going to be preserved out of it. Um, as we'll get into much further, uh, we'll show you the details of it. There appears to be three destinies for the end-time saints. Uh, one is the destiny of the sword. There will be certain people who will take up the sword in an effort to defend themselves and others. And the Messiah has said that those that pick up the sword will die by the sword. They'll die in con- combat and conflict. The second one is some people are going to be taken captive, whether they did it by negligence and not escaping, or whether it was purposed for them. In any case, there's a destiny for certain saints to be taken captive. And then finally, 
there's a destiny which is the one that I believe that that I'm teaching to the people. It's to, that you're going to escape these things, you're going to survive uh, this time, and you're going to endure all the way to the end and see the coming of the Lord. And throughout those three letters, uh, or excuse me, seven letters that you hear, there are different hints as to these different destinies for certain people. The second church, of course, was told to be faithful unto death. They've been taken captive. They won't die of starvation. They're, they're going to die in the tribulation. And, and the other ones that are going to escape, the church of Philadelphia is the one who is going to be preserved and kept from the hour of testing and, and uh, things like that. So those things are laced in there. Now, what a lot of folks will try to do is they'll try to cherry pick well, which one is the most positive message? I think I'll go for that one. You know, But these are seven complete messages that are appropriate for all the believers uh, to hear. Then in chapters 4 and 5, which we did in the last couple of programs, we specifically looked at the throne of God. This is one of three great visions of the throne of God. One was given to us by Ezekiel, one by Isaiah, and now by John. And they give us a 3D picture of the throne of God. Isaiah's view was from the top down. Uh, Ezekiel's view was from the bottom up. John gives us this view straight on. Why, as we've asked the question, why do we have the throne of God being presented to us um, before we get into the end time prophecies of the great trip? The reason is we need to know where the commander in chief is at. You know, we're going to go into a war here at the end of the age. We need to know where the boss is at. We need to know he's there. We need to know he's on his throne. And it also sets the stage for what we will learn later that there are things that are happening in heaven that correspond to things that will happen on the earth. Down here on the earth, the great tribulation is going to begin with the shutting down of an operating altar in Jerusalem. And the altar is God's ownership symbol of the whole earth. And it will be denied him by the enemy. And that will be the conflict that is here on the earth. The first words ever spoken over the altar are the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. To deny the altar and to deny the sacrifices on the altar is to say, no, the earth does not belong uh, to the Lord and the fullness thereof. And that is the contention of the Antichrist and the devil. The devil, he's tried to steal this, and he's trying to contend that all mankind belongs to him, and that's the reason why we have this conflict uh, going on. Now, in heaven, the corresponding part is this. This is, We have Michael the archangel, which is stationed here on the earth to protect Israel. He's called the prince of Israel to protect Israel. He's also called the restrainer. He restrains evil from coming to uh, Israel. There are many princes of nations, and they are angels. Um, and we hear in other prophets where, for example, the prince of Persia, which was we're talking about an angel in particular, did a particular thing. Michael is the archangel of the nation of Israel. 
right now as we speak, he's here on the earth and he's protecting Israel, restraining evil. But as Paul said at the start of the Great Tribulation, the restrainer is taken out of that place. And the scriptures goes on to say, and we'll see here in the book of Revelation, Michael will be raising up from the earth, from protecting Israel up into heaven, and he will lead the army of heaven to cast Satan out of heaven. And when he casts him out of heaven, he's cast down to the earth. As soon as he arrives on the earth, that's when the great tribulation is going to be coming. That's when the scripture says he knows his days are numbered. How do we know that specifically? Because the prophecy tells us exactly how many days are going to be in the great tribulation before the Lord will be coming back. Daniel shares that with us in chapter 12, that the great tribulation from start to finish is 1,290 days. Blessed is he who sees the 1,335th day. 1,335th day is the first day of the kingdom. That means the devil only has that amount of time uh, leading up to his ultimate judgment. And, uh, and, uh, but, but the great tribulation is a corresponding battle that took place in heaven now is down on the earth with us and the conflict. Now, while all of, I've given you a summary view of what the rest of this book is actually going to be, uh, telling us about. And the reason why I've done that is because we're getting ready to see what is the book of the book. And the book of the book is a whole series of judgments that God will be pouring out on the earth. We're going to look first at seven seals. Then we're going to see seven trumpets. And then we're going to see seven plagues. Now, in between those, we're going to receive some what I refer to as parenthetical interruptions. We're going to, there's other things happening on the earth associated with these things, uh, and they're sprinkled in there to kind of let you know this is where those people are at and this is what those people are doing, this is what this is happening. Um, and the way the book is laid out, and this is the best analogy that I can give you, and I hope this makes sense to you, is to do the following. Let's say that you and I go to a very large theater, and there's an orchestra that is set up on the stage, and they're getting ready to play. The musician's not there yet, but all their seats are there, and the, the little things that holds their music, uh, the music stands are there, their instruments are there. And what I'm going to do, and this is essentially what happens in the book of Revelation, before the musicians show up and start playing any of the music they're going to be playing, I'm going to take you up into where the orchestra is at, and I'm going to lead you through the different sections of the orchestra. For example, I'm going to take you to where the violin's set, and I'm going to show you some of the music that the violins will play. And then the next is I take you over to the percussion instruments and the drums and cymbals and things like that, and I'll show you that. And then I take you over where the brass plays, where the trumpets and trombones and so forth play. Then I'm going to show you the music stand up here where the choir is standing that will be singing with the music. And then finally I'll take you over here where you can see where the final instruments are at. Now, after I've taken you up and explained all of that to you, would you then assume that the way the music is actually going to be played is the way I showed it to you. In other words, when you go to hear the concert, the first thing you're going to hear is the violins play their music, and then they'll stop. 
Then the drums will play for a while, and they'll stop. Then the trumpets will, and the brass will play for a while, and then they'll stop. And then all the other wind, wind uh, instruments, they'll play. The choir will finally sing a song by themselves. And so would you assume that everything is segregated and, and linear the way I presented it to you? Obviously not. You would know that this is a, a completely integrated thing here happening. That while the violins are playing, while those instruments might be playing a little bit, and those might be playing a little bit, and maybe the choir is singing a little bit, and maybe there might be some solos in there every once in a while where just two groups are playing or this group is playing. And, and then finally, you would understand, I wouldn't have to explain it to you, probably at the end of the song, the climax of the song, they're probably all playing at the same time. Well, that's the best way I can describe to you these judgments that we're getting ready to see. We're going to get shown them just like if you were walking through the orchestra. But I'm here to tell you the way to properly understand this is pay attention to the cues because all of these are going to be playing at the same time. And something about the seals will be happening, something about the trumpets will be happening, something about the plagues will be happening. Now, they kind of watershed a little bit. And I'll show you where the watershed moments are. But it all leads to one conclusion. There's one climax where they're all playing. And they all have a say in the end of it. And this is the reason, one of the reasons why I've encouraged you, when you go through the study, to pay very close attention to the angels and which angels telling you what. Which heavenly creature is pointing something out to you because remembering where they're positioned remembering something about them it's crucial plus whatever else the prophets have ever said about this prophecy or this particular judgment or as they've given any other clues before about these items the process is pulling all that together here's what the end result is Instead of you having a very linear approach to understanding this book, you're going to have a 3D view. This is like, uh, you know, if you, if you know what a, a holographic display is, it's it's put up in front of you and it's 3D, and you can walk around and it's it's like like you can see in all the different angles. Going through this book, pulling all the pieces together, is like building a holographic display of God's end time judgments. And so rather than having a linear kind of cut and chop kind of view, I'm going to try to do my best to build this little holographic display for you so you can see how all of these pieces uh, fit together and, and really show something rather dramatic. I've never seen a book, never heard of a story that ever even comes close to what this book does. I have no doubt in my mind as to why this book is the final book in the Bible that we have that was given to us by God. This is one of the most fascinating pieces of literature that has ever been put to parchment uh, for us to have. And it stands out strong to us in the final generation. All right, with that wonderful introduction, as we get ready to go into the judgments, let's look to chapter 6 now, and let me begin by reading uh, from verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat 
on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he was out conquering and to conquer and when he broke the second seal I heard the second living creature say come and another a red horse went out and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth and that one uh, and that men should slay one another and a great sword was given to him and when he broke the third seal I heard the third living creature saying come and I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat upon him had a pair of scales in his hand and I heard as it were a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine and when he broke the fourth seal I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying come and I looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it named death and Hades was following with him and authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts and of the earth now I'm not going to go further I need to stop and do some explaining here to begin with um, I want did you take note of which heavenly creature announced each of those seals if you follow the sequence it was the first living creature, then the second one, then the third one, then the fourth one. If you go back to our description of the heavenly throne, you're going to discover that back in chapter 4, we were introduced to these creatures. In chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature like the face that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and the day and the night, and they do not cease saying, Holy, holy, holy. The six wings tells us something very specific about these creatures. They're called seraphim. The seraphim are the six-winged creature as opposed to the angels that are below, <coughs> which are called cherubim. And cherubim have four wings. But seraphim have six wings. And these are the seraphim that are before the Lord God's throne. Um, and they are kind of hovering above. The picture we get is they're hovering above the throne. And um, they use two of the wings to cover their eyes, two of the wings to cover their feet, and with two wings they fly. Um, and they're the ones who are announcing as the lamb breaks each seal, they're announcing what it is. And they're saying, come, you know, and, and see what it is. So the Lamb of God is breaking the seals. He's the only one worthy to do so. And, um, and why would the Lamb of God be breaking seals? Let's just, let's, why, why would he be doing that task? If you'll remember, the Lamb of God, we're talking about the Messiah, he ascended to heaven, right? Remember, you know, after the resurrection, he ascended to heaven. What's he been doing all that time up there? He's been seated at the right hand of the Father, okay, and waiting patiently. 
the scripture says the reason why he's been waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Meaning, until your enemies are cast to the earth, because the earth is the footstool of God. Remember I told you the conflict? Okay. So when the Messiah rises up from his seat to the right hand of the Father is the moment that the enemies have been cast down and Michael is now back up in heaven. And where does Michael normally sit? At the right hand. So Yeshua is stepping away from the seat so that Michael can have his seat with the other archangels. And now the Messiah is now ruling in heaven for the first time. Now, because he had simply ascended and was told to wait, this is the moment when the Messiah stands. He stands up and he breaks seals. This is the beginning of the Messiah to rule from heaven. Which, by the way, is... I would love to use the word earth-shaking, but that it, it's far greater than earth. It's heavenly shaking, you know, when he does it. Now, you've got to understand this. This is the language that God has chosen to do. I'm not saying that the Messiah is not sovereign. I'm not saying he's not God. I'm not saying he doesn't have the power to rule and have authority and all that kind of thing. This is the way the Lord has said that he does it. And it's not to diminish anything whatsoever from his power, what he's been doing in the past, or what he's getting ready to do. Essentially, the the stage is set that the Messiah begins to rule in heaven first, but he's getting ready to come to the earth, and he's getting ready to rule on the earth too. And to, he's got to defeat his enemies up in heaven, cast them down, and then defeat his enemies here before they go ultimately to the pit. So this is the drama that we see and when we when we hear about these seals being broken put this in your mind now these seraphim are announcing these judgments but who's really breaking the seals the messiah the messiah is breaking these seals now uh, these are sometimes uh, teachers have called these what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse there's these colored horses and they each have something specific to say about them. Before we go any further, I need to allude to that you need to go back and read Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6 talks about four colored horses with chariots. And it is specifically said of the four colored horses that they patrol certain areas of the earth. And if you were to take the globe of the earth and, and it breaks the earth into like four hemispheres or four, four elements uh, to it, and the north is like one element uh, of, the, of the globe, two of the spirits are assigned to the north and some of them are assigned to the south. And I think when we look at these judgments, it's hinting at this particular judgment we read based on the color of the horse. Its effect on the globe, its effect on the earth is based on the colored horses and what regions do they patrol of the earth. So, for example, the white one in particular is going to be to the north. The northern hemisphere of the earth is going to have these uh, the effect of the white horse. But if you look down on the ashen horse and, and uh, so forth, it says that one's to the south. 
you know, and as you take Zechariah chapter 6, it gives you a hint as to, okay, well, I see this colored horse, and there's what this judgment is. Now, how does that fit into the earth? In other words, is there anything further we can glean from it? And yes, there is. It can tell you to focus on a particular region of the earth as to where this judgment will be most profound. We know with the exception of the day of the Lord judgment, that many of the judgments we have are specific and localized to the earth. For example, later on you'll hear about a judgment that is upon the sea. Uh, Duh, obviously it won't be affecting the land. It'll be affecting... Another one's on the coastlands. Another one's on all of the trees. Well, that won't be affecting the oceans. In other words, it's specific to certain areas of the earth. And the stage is set for us to pay attention to where the judgments are hitting. Um, And it starts with um, Zechariah chapter 6, where it talks about patrolling the areas of the earth. So we begin with these first four horses. And I want to spend just a little bit of time with you on them. The first one is a white horse, and it describes a rider who sat on it with a bow, and a crown was given him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So this is a, this is a, a, a crown. Somebody who's a leader is riding on a white horse. And by the way, the symbol of a white horse is like the Messiah when he comes. So uh, the Messiah is pictured as coming on a white horse. This person is pictured as coming on a white horse. A crown is given to him. This is starting to replicate. It sounds like the Messiah, but it's not the Messiah. This is a false Messiah. This is the rise of the Antichrist. This is how he comes onto the earth. He comes, he's trying to mimic the Messiah. Remember, he's an anti-Messiah, so he imitates the Messiah. And this writer comes imitating the Messiah to lay conquest over the whole earth. Now, I want you to take note that he has a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. So how successful a weapon is that? Well, it's not a successful weapon. It's not by military means that the Antichrist will conquer and go a-conquering. Obviously, he's going to use a non-military method, but it will be just as conquering as if he had had an army you know, with him to go do it. The Scripture tells us very emphatically that the Antichrist himself, while he worships the, the god of fortresses, he worships uh, military, science, and so forth, and that he's a leader of that, he doesn't win the nations of the world by going waging world war. It says he uses influence. He seizes the kingdom with intrigue and by influence. That's what the prophecy says of him. So here comes this guy on a white horse. He's, claim, he's got this crown. He's trying to imitate the Messiah. And, and for the sake of discussion, we're just going to call him the anti-Messiah from here on out. He's the anti-Messiah. He comes, and he's going to be conquering the kingdom. He's going to be trying to conquer the whole world with intrigue and influence. And he'll be gaining power. Now, the prophecy is very specific. The Antipsi only gets to rule for 42 months, not longer. So at the start of the Great Tribulation, after the shutting down of the altar, we know that's a three-and-a-half-year period. 
uh, and there's 42 months that fall within it. By the way, at the start of the Great Tribulation, we know it's the season of winter. At the end of the Great Tribulation, we know it's the season of the conclusion of the end of summer and going into the fall. The fall holidays of trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Sukkot are the days that immediately happen after summer. We know the Day of Atonement is the Day of the Lord. The trumpets is illustrating for us the resurrection of the saints, the gathering of all of his people, then the day of the Lord, and then the first celebration in the kingdom. So the day of the Lord is when the Antipasiah is he's done in. If you take um, the um, uh, a future day of atonement, in other words, let's project out um, three four years. And you take that and you count back 42 months, essentially it comes back and it, it doesn't equal 1260 days. Nor does it equal 1290 days. It's something just short of it. And here's the reason why. The months being used here, when it uses 42 months, those are Hebrew months. Those are lunar months. They average 29 days and some hours. If you total 42 Hebrew months up, okay, you're never going to get to 1,260 days. But you will be equivalent to three and a half years. And so that's one of the examples of where these different measurements used in the prophecy are very specific. He's not prophesied to be every day of the Great Tribulation, but he will rise to power soon after the Great Tribulation begins and the day count begins, and then he'll rise to power shortly thereafter. But his counting method is by months, and it will take it to Yom Kippur, the future day of the Lord. That's when his rule comes to a conclusion. So he is going to rise to power. And that's one of the first judgments. Uh, now, why would that be a judgment on the earth? Well, you didn't want God to be in charge, so why don't we just let the devil be in charge? Is, is that enough judgment for you? Does that, that send a quake through your boots as to what the world's getting ready to face? Yeah, you're about to get what you wanted. You wanted him to be in charge. You kept worshiping him, kept favoring him, kept choosing away from God, kept choosing him instead. Okay, you can have him. So right off the bat, he's kicked out of heaven and he's thrown to the earth. And by the way, when he shows up, he's not real happy about being in charge. Because he knows his days are numbered. He knows there's a limit to how far he can go. And so there's really no pleasure in it for him. And so he is bound and determined to make it as miserable as he possibly can for the saints, make it as miserable as he can for the earth. In fact, if you go back into Zechariah the prophet, where it talks about the anti-Messiah, he talks about that he has two sticks. And one is called favor, one is called union. And these are the two um, kind of policies that he has uh, throughout his rule on the earth. And at one point, he simply, he tells, um, he removes food from the people. And he, and he uses this term, he said, let the people eat themselves. Now, that sounds like a really good leader, doesn't it? Let the people eat themselves. 
I mean, that's the kind of leadership the anti-Messiah is going to bring, and that's the kind of guy that he is that is prophesied to come. He's got a crown. He's coming on a white horse. He's faking it like he's the Messiah, and he's going to be a terrible, terrible person uh, that will be carrying this out. If I could elaborate just for um, a little bit, you know, the devil has set up his kind of his kingdom to imitate what God has done. Satan, Hasatan, is like the counterpart to our Heavenly Father. The Antimessiah is like the counterpart to the Son of God. And for the Holy Spirit, we have many evil spirits that serve the devil. And so in the three layers, he's imitating and so forth. The Messiah came the first time uh, to us, the Son of God. The world has rejected him, so now the devil's going to send his version of his Messiah and see how, and here's the bad part, the world's going to endorse him. The world's going to go for it, go for a false Messiah. And this will be part of the punishment and part of the judgment that falls upon him. So that's the first judgment that falls, and it happens shortly after the Great Tribulation starts. Now, let me... Let me uh, just add to that, just to expand on that a little bit. For those of you who, like me, are looking for the specific prophecies of the start of the Great Tribulation, namely the shutting down of the altar, we know that starts the day count. From that day forward, the Great Tribulation has 1,290 days. It's, that's the, the, the initiating event. Well, okay, so we see that happen. Does that mean that's when immediately when we escape? The answer is no. Uh, am I expecting on the very next day or expecting the seals to be broken? No. So what, what's going to happen? Well, the altar gets shut down, and the word of this will go out to many people. Many people are going to get warned. Hey, this is the starting prophecy. The Great Tribulation has definitely begun. We're not looking for anything else. To, it, it, it's, things are getting ready to happen. And then the very next significant event is going to be we're going to eat a Passover. Passover will be coming early in the spring right after that event. Why will that Passover be significant? That's the start of the greater exodus. Elijah will be in the world at that point, or the spirit of Elijah will be. He is one of the two witnesses, as I'll show you later in chapter 11. He will begin to prophesy from either side of the cold altar that had been shut down. So we're there where we are on that Passover. We're eating the Passover, and if you remember the Passover, we set the place for Elijah. We have the cup for Elijah, and we always ask, is Elijah here so that we can invite him in to join us for our Seder? If all of a sudden we eat the Passover Seder and we now have the information that Elijah is in the world, that the spirit of Elijah, this is the Passover we escape. This is the one that starts the exodus. Just like the ancient one started it, this is the one that starts the exodus for us. So we'll see that event. Has any of the other judgments yet fallen yet? No. We're going to have plenty of time to escape. God's not pouring out big, long-range judgments on us. The Antichrist is not at power yet. But after we escape, and shortly after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then he comes to power. And it will be for before the Feast of Weeks. 
Passover and unleavened bread will have been completed. We will have fulfilled all of those. We will have eaten the Passover. We will have eaten the bread of haste. We will have escaped. We'll, we'll be in the greater exodus. Now, there's going to be some other people who didn't go on that, and they're standing around wondering what in the world's going on. They don't see anything happening. But very shortly thereafter, that's when the first seal is broken. The Messiah is not going to break any seals and pour out any judgments until his people are ready and following his instructions on how to escape. We do not escape uh, being chased. We are not disturbed when we escape. We escape because this is what the Lord said to do. Nobody's chasing us. You do it because you believe the word of the Lord. So we escape. We get into our, our um, camps. We get in, we're in our sukkahs, and now judgments begin to fall. This is why the scripture talks about in the Psalms that though a thousand fall on your left and ten thousand fall on your right, no harm shall come to you in your sukkah. That's what the psalmist says. If you're in your sukkah, no harm comes to you, even though it may be dropping like flies all around you. And that's a, a description of you being in your sukkah, being in the camp of the righteous, escaping, surviving, enduring to the end while the great tribulation is taking place on the earth. So we have the Antichrist now is into the world. He's conquering, and he's not using a military means to do it, and that's the first judgment, the first thing that happens. Now, there's not a period of time that follows very shortly and essentially connected with this first seal that happens. The second seal gets popped too. And the second seal, if you remember, it says, Another red horse went out, and to him who was on it was granted to take peace from the earth. War comes. Big time war. Big time battles. A great sword is given to him. And a great sword, this is again another mimicking of the Messiah. Because when the Messiah comes, he comes with a sword. And if you go to Ezekiel chapter 21, that's where uh, the prophecy speaks of the Messiah's great flashing sword. That essentially this is the kind of sword that if it comes out of the sheath, it does not go back into the sheath without blood on it. In other words, if it comes out of the sheep, it's coming out to slay. And so he comes out and he mimics the Messiah, and he now begins to take peace from the earth and begins to slay people. By the way, if there's a whole bunch of people getting killed by war, uh, you might want to have already escaped because it will be a national state of emergency and all kinds of interesting things will be taking place all over the world uh, from that. Uh, we look again to the third seal. Again, this begins to pop. And he says, and he broke the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and a black horse, and you sat upon had a pair of scales in his hand. And so we're talking about something economic. Well, you can imagine that economic policy and war, they go together. In fact, a lot of wars have taken place in the world because of economics. And when a country feels like they're being choked to death economically, that's when they wage wars uh, to try to gain things and so forth. We live today, we live in a very volatile world, basically, of haves and have-nots. And war is always being talked about as a possibility uh, for it as a result. But look at verse 6. 
And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, now stop there for a moment. Which creature said this? It wasn't one of the four. It was a voice that came from the center of them. Now that is intriguing. Like, what is that? And there, do, you, do you see that we're starting to see some sparkling things that are like, whoa, I, I never thought about that before. I never saw that before. There is some amazing things getting ready to take place. So this voice comes from the center of the four living creatures, and it says this. A quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, the word denarius is a denomination for a Roman coin and the Roman Greco world. Now, uh, we don't have this script in the Hebrew. This, is, this has been translated from the Greek. Uh, and it may be that John really originally did write this in the Greek because at the time that he wrote it, he was amongst many uh, Gentile brethren. Uh, he was ministering to them, and he wasn't ministering to his Hebrew brethren. He was ministering to the whole world where he had been dispatched in the Asia Minor. Um, and so it may be he was using the denarius. The interesting thing for the word denarius is essentially a denarius was understood in the Roman world as being a day's wage. If you went out to labor, you would earn a denarius. And a denarius um, uh, was um, essentially uh, able to purchase all of your food, uh, your housing, take care of anything else you wanted to do. You know, you'd save up your denarius, just like us Hebrews would save up our shekels, just like you Americans would save up your dollars. And, you know, take take this, for example. Let's say that the average man today, he makes uh, $100 a day. Let's just say for a sake. What is really being said here is that all of the money he earns in a day is required for the food that he would consume in that day. So you make $100 a day, and it's all taken up in just food for you to survive. You don't have any food for housing. You don't have or money for housing. You don't have any money for anything else. All your money is consumed in just trying to get enough food for you to eat. And that's what this expression is saying. A denarius for a quart of wheat. A quart of wheat. What could you do with a quart of wheat? You could mill it, and it's enough to make you daily bread. You could, it's enough flour that you could make a loaf of bread, and that would be your daily bread. Um, and it's try- that's what it's trying to illustrate is that and three quarts of barley, that would be also food that would be. And so it's the amount, all of your money that you'd earn in a day is now consumed in just trying to get enough food for it. And then he says, do not harm the oil and the wine. Oil and wine are those commodities associated with a life at leisure or a life that is doing well. Um, that you have oil for the cooking of things, you have oil for your lamp, you have wine to drink, that's what keeps you healthy, that's what you eat, drink with your foods, and so forth. So it doesn't harm those things, but it does harm your ability to get nourishing food and daily food. So the judgment is, we don't have enough food. We're on the brink of famine. So we've got war, 
we're on the brink of famine. By the way, if you have worldwide war, you know, all those global shipments of food from all over the world, all that different stuff, no more. Here in the United States, in the wintertime, all those fruit, all those vegetables we eat in the wintertime, where do they come from? By ship from other countries. How about we just shut that off? And the only time you're going to get tomatoes is if you grow them and you'll get them in the middle of the summer. You don't get them any other time of the year. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a world in which that the access to food is severely restricted. The cost is so high that it takes essentially all your income uh, to do it. Terrible judgment. Um, then he goes to the next one, verse 7. And he broke the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat upon him named Death, Hades were following with him, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with the famine, with pestilence, and with wild beasts. A fourth of the earth. We have seven billion people in the world today. A fourth of the earth would be the death of 1.5 billion people. There's no war that has ever come close to that number. There's no plague that's ever come close to that number. The great uh, flu influenza thing that happened after World War I, most, one of the most devastating events that's ever took place, killed 22, 23 million people. Um, the um, World War II, uh, people killed in World War II, 50, 55 uh, million people. Million people. So let's see, 1.5 billion people would be three times everything that was lost in World War II. Unbelievable amount of people that die. And by the way, this isn't, this isn't the bad one. This is just, we're getting the ball going. These are the events that I believe that will be unfolding in effectively the first six months of the Great Tribulation. They, these four seals go bing, 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 all of a sudden at the same time. The reason why I say that is because the way they're presented, they're presented as a cluster of judgments. And by the way, when we get to the trumpets, the first four trumpets are presented as a cluster. The same thing follows with the plagues. There's a cluster of the initial judgments, then individual specific judgments follow. And there's patterns in these judgments and how they're laid out. And it alludes to that when the seals get broke, there's a bunch of seals that get broke at the same time. When the trumpets get broke, get played, there's a bunch of them that get sounded right off the bat or together. Same thing with the plagues. And there's this watershed of this just terrible things, you know, that follow uh, one after another. Um, and again, the other seals, the other trumpets and the other um, uh, plagues, they get played together at the same time leading all the way to the end. 
um, when we get to it, I'll explain to you the, the one thing, the one judgment that really ties it all together so you can see how they all fit uh, together, and that will be at the end of the chapter. But as we complete these uh, four horsemen, this last one is really bad, this ashen horse. Where else in Scripture do we hear anything about like this? Well, let me show you. Let me take you to Ezekiel chapter 14. Um, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 14, uh, Ezekiel and the Lord are having this interesting discussion. And it has to do with uh, God's uh, power to deliver and God's power to carry out judgment. And so what he does, i got to get here to chapter 14 here. He begins by... Um, um, He begins at verse 12, and he says the following words to us. This is Ezekiel 14, verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it and destroy its supply of bread and send famine against it and cut off from both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in the midst by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. If God decides to put famine on a nation, there's only three guys that can make it. Noah can make it, Daniel can make it, and Job can make it. Now, why, why pick those names? Well, they are the stories in the Bible of certain people who have been delivered. In the case of Noah, God was, uh, excuse me, Noah was delivered from God's worldwide judgment of the flood. Daniel was delivered from the judgment of the king. Remember, he's thrown in the lion's den. Job was delivered from the judgment of the devil himself. So these three men, they would be able to deliver themselves, but they can't deliver anybody else. That's how powerful. When God puts a famine as a judgment on a nation, that's how powerful it is. Only, only those three guys can make it. If you go down to verse 15, he then shifts and he talks about wild beasts and the same thing. Verse 17, he talks about the sword. If I bring the sword, only those three guys, nobody else. Then he gets down to verse 19, and I bring a plague, disease. Only those three guys, nobody else. Nobody else can be delivered. If you remember from the fourth horse, it's all four of these at the same time. So if each one of these has this much power of judgment, and only Noah, Daniel, and Job make it, by the way, I'll just go ahead and ask a quick question here. We're end-time believers. Any Noah's, Daniel's, and Job's among us? No. None, none, of, none of us are those guys. So according to this, when these judgments fall, everybody is subject to it. Nobody is exempt. Wow. Maybe that's the reason why a quarter of mankind dies. That's how devastating these judgments are when they first hit. 
But then I want you to see the encouraging thing that gets said here. Verse 21, For thus says the Lord, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to cut off man and beast from it. Excuse me, he is talking about the fourth horseman of the apocalypse right there. How much more severe will it be when I do all four at the same time? You know, the ashen horse that brings death and hell. There it is. He said, how, how much more severe? I don't know how it can be much more severe, but it would be devastating. And then he says something wonderful. And this is the part that should encourage you. Verse 22. When he pours out all four judgments, then God says this. Yet behold, survivors will be left in it who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, they're going to come forth to you, and you will see their conduct and uh, see their conduct and actions. Then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem, for everything which I have brought upon it. Then they will comfort you when you see their conduct and activities for you. And we'll know that I have not done in vain whatever I did to it, declares the Lord God. Remember me telling you there's going to be some survivors. There's going to be those that escape, uh, survive, and endure, which we're going to be called tribulation saints. That's the verse from Ezekiel 14 talking about the tribulation saints. I want to set the stage for you. The tribulation saints are going to see a deliverance from God, the judgments of God and the deliverance from God that exceeds Noah, Daniel, and Job all put together. Because in the Great Tribulation, there's judgments from God, there's judgments from men, and there's judgments from the devil all being poured out at the same time. And specifically, he says, there are going to be survivors. Not just individual survivors. This is the part I really like. They also have the power to deliver sons and daughters. Not only can they be saved, but they have the ability to reach out and help others to be delivered from it as well. Uh, So here you have this incredible uh, picture of this overwhelming judgment hitting the earth. And yet at the same time, the prophets of old have said, yeah, but when all of it hits like that, so i got something really wonderful to tell you. There's this thing that's even greater than Noah and Daniel and Job, and and there's going to be these survivors. In fact, the term survivor gets used multiple times by the prophets when it's talking about those that make it through the day of the Lord. Those that make it all the way through the great tribulation to the day of the Lord. And our prayer would be that we would be some of those. Can I give you a hint on how to, how to get yourself into that category? Pay real close attention to the seven messages that the Messiah gave and pay attention to the things he said get corrected. Because then he says those are called the overcomers. And he promises wonderful and good things for us. The same things that the survivors start to get. Namely, you live. You get to live. And, and you receive rewards from God. And you are, uh, believe you me, when we get to the kingdom, 
uh, Noah, Daniel, and Job are going to want to have a lot of conversations with the tribulation saints, like because they will be impressed by what happens to us in those days. All right, we have now waded into the first four seals and um, and shown what they are about. Again, I call it a cluster judgment. I'll emphasize that term again with you when we get into the trumpets. And the stage is now set to see um, the fifth through the seventh judgment uh, for the breaking of seals. And that will be in our next program. So, shalom, everyone. Until next program. Thank you.